Welcome to the Startup Help Desk, your source to answer the questions about building businesses, starting businesses, and the meaning of life. Your panel here are we're all experienced founders, entrepreneurs, and investors. We've learned all the hard lessons about building companies the hard way. And we're trying to save you that same trouble by answering questions submitted by all of you through our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com, and on Twitter at thestartuphd. My name is Sean Burns. I've been a founder for 20 years of companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I've coached hundreds of companies and along the way, learned lots of lessons I'm looking forward to sharing you. We have a panel here of experienced and interesting founders, Ash and Nick. Hello, everyone. My name's Ash Rust, and I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the US, UK, and Canada through my fund, Sterling Road. I've also worked at places like Trinity Ventures and Bullpen Capital as an advisor. Before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at the social media company Clout, as well as the CEO and co-founder of SendUp. These days, I spend most of my time coaching founders, and I've helped more than a thousand startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I am co-founder and CEO of a startup called Navi. We help people learn innovation skills, solve mission-critical problems, and bring new ideas to life. Along the way, I've supported hundreds of founders on their startup journeys. I'm excited to be here, and I can't wait to jump into our questions for today. And as a quick question, you coach so many companies. I imagine there's this big ticker in your office that that number is like constantly going up every hour. Tell me, is there actually a ticker in your office that's constantly going up, like the debt clock in the U.S.? It's more like a wheel of fortune with a number going <laughs> up and down. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. And that's it. based on my memory being a sieve more than anything else. <laughs> but oh. that happens to the best of us, even those, you know, all of us are going to get older. That's Same right. And, and I'm, I'm going to catch up eventually. That's right. We, we unfortunately couldn't find the best of us to answer all of your questions today, but you'll have to do with the three of us. We will do our best. And we have a whole collection of questions that, again, were submitted by people just like you. So if you have a question... Find us at thestartuphelpdesk.com or at thestartuphd on Twitter. We'd love to answer your question in a future episode. But today, we have a whole bunch of questions that were submitted all around navigating uncertainty. There's lots of uncertainty in starting a business. You have market changes. You have competitive shifts. Your customers, you know, all sorts of changes. How do you navigate that uncertainty and continue to grow? All of our questions are around that. So let's kick it off. So Ash and Nick, this first question is something that not only was submitted here, but I hear all the time. So I get asked this question these days. This we're mid-2023 here. And the question is, I need to raise more funding in 2024, but I don't know what the market will be like then. How do I know what targets to aim for to be able to raise money? It's a profound question. Ash, you're the investor among us. What do you think, man? Well, I don't have good news, folks. I think there's two parts to this. First of all, if you are planning to raise in the first half of 2024, I wish you the very best of luck because I think there's going to be an absolute stampede. I do think the economy will have started to recover by then. In the macro sense, I think VCs will be deploying and I think that's going to start causing just a rush of people who have to raise in early 2024. So I would not want to do that because I think it's going to be hard to get attention in the crowd. Now, if you're going to wait until the second half of 2024, I think that's going to be a reasonable time to raise because we're going to be moving back towards the number of rounds we saw back in 2018, 2019, those kinds of things. But I recognize not everyone can wait a whole year from now here as recording here in mid-June 2023. You may not be able to wait a year uh, before you fundraise. And if that's the case, well, 
I don't have good news. As I said, I'm afraid what I'm telling my portfolio is not to try and fundraise now with a sense of urgency as if uh, the end of the year is some deadline. Instead, try and make some hard choices and find a path to sustainability such that you can wait until late 2024 to raise. Interesting. Okay. Nick, do you have good news for us? Any piece of good news, even if it's what you had for lunch? He's lying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. You know, I think that uh, I'm always excited to give good news in abundance. And I think it's going to be a little bit trickier on this one. What I will say is that a couple of the common themes around fundraising still hold true. And so the first piece of this is the best time to fundraise is when you don't necessarily need it. And I mentioned that because if you are anticipating needing to fundraise in 2024, per Ash's prediction, sounds like we're in for some uh, rocky roads ahead. And so if you need money in 12 months, you're going to want to start fundraising soon. Because as we all know, you likely need at least three months of all-in effort to do so. So start sooner than you think. And then the second thing that I'll mention here, and then I'll kick it back to Ash and Sean, is just thinking about what are the... What are the signals that you can be able to give to prospective investors? So if you're pre-seed and seed, the expectations that you haven't found product market fit yet. So at this stage, you really need to just start showing some acceleration around traction. And to have graduated from Stanford. That's That helps out quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that is the ultimate accelerator when it comes to uh, showing traction and proof to an investor. But if you've got some first major customers and some evidence that you're solving their problem and then a pipeline of some customers in the queue, it's a good place to start. So that would be the pre-seed and seed. Moving beyond that, you likely need to show a minimum of just 2x year-over-year growth. And of course, more than that is better. It'll help position you to be ready for what Ash has said is going to be a busy time of year and you'll be facing a lot of competition. I think that 2x number is is really good. That's a, that's a big change as well, because last year, maybe 2022, 2021, people were looking for 4 to 6x annual growth. Now, 2x growth with a path to sustainability is much more important. Good point. Mm. I, I, so I have a question for you, Ash, following up on what you said. So let's say that you have a company that, that can't wait, that there's no cost cutting that'll work for them. They're already running the wire and... If you don't think there's a chance to fundraise, is that the kind of thing where your advice is just close up shop now and not even try to make it work? Or, or what would you tell a company that waiting may not be an option? Well, they're probably going to have to go out and raise right now if you really, really can't do any more cuts at all, or you have to sell or you have to shut down. So those are your three options. It's not rocket science, but the reality is that for most people, they're going to choose that first option of trying to fundraise from inside is maybe raise a small bridge round. Uh, try and find some kind of path to sustainability. But it's a really tough road if you have to raise over the next six months or so. And if you're in a position of desperation, then obviously investors are going to smell that and it doesn't look good. It's desperation, by the way. It smells a little musky. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you're all your equipment after. Sean, that's just sport. you, bud. That's just you. <laughs> oh, yes. I, uh, as a mark that I'm achieving something as a parent, I was playing sports with my son and he's getting better at smack talking. And the other day we were playing and he was like, you know, daddy, you smell like failure. And I was like, wow, Ooh. that's, that's Dagger. harsh. I'm that's like, the problem I'm with holding- teaching them how to talk. 
<laughs> rookie mistake. So I guess overall, our lesson and our first question here is that when you really, when there's a lot of uncertainty, you have to be conservative because being being conservative is the only way to preserve your options. That makes sense. Nick, what else is out there that we could talk about in terms of uncertainty today? What other questions are on our queue? All right, let's get to it. This is another question that we received from a founder. And so the question is, my business is growing, but not fast. I could cut costs, but that would reduce our growth further. How do I know if I should spend more money to grow faster or cut costs to preserve money? Sean, do you want to kick things off? Well, it's interesting. This goes back to what Ash was saying. This is a, I mean, this, first of all, it's Put not just coin. today's market. This is a constant problem. <laughs> it depends how much the coin is worth. If the coin is very valuable, maybe you sell that for some capital. It's a hard, it's a hard question. So first, I think that um, the question is being, what's a more likely scenario? Do you think you can grow fast enough to maybe raise more money or achieve your goals? Or do you think if you're going to cut costs to survive, can you survive long enough? Because these are interrelated, right? If you start cutting costs, maybe your business starts to contract. You're going to lay off people. Maybe you can't give the same kind of customer service you used to give. You may start losing customers, which means revenue goes down, which means you have to cut more costs. You can enter a death spiral. Same thing with growth. You can focus on growth and you might grow. But if you don't grow fast enough, you'll just run into another type of wall. Where you don't you grow you grow but not fast enough to raise more money. So the questions being, which do you think you're more confident in doing? Can you grow fast enough to hit your next goal, or can you survive long enough? Can you be profitable in a way that's sustainable? Um, for a lot of companies, it's a surprisingly hard question to answer. They're not actually quite sure, so you have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And then. Secondly, the, I think the default advice has shifted. You know, as Ash said, in previous years, everybody was like, grow, grow, grow. The money will be there if you need it. Now it's more like get to profitability, survive. The money probably won't be there if you need it. I do think that the universal truism is that if you can get to profitability or at least break even, you can give yourself more options. However, it's important to realize that if you go, if you aim for a very no growth or slow growth profitability, you probably won't be able to raise venture capital money in the future. So it is a choice. Um, it's it's a hard choice to make, but it's the kind of thing where I also want to emphasize it's important to commit. If you're going to go for growth, you go for growth. If you're going to go for profitability, you're going to go for profitability. You can't really play both games. It's not, I, I have never found it working very well. But I don't know, Ash, what do you think, man? Have you seen anybody navigate that? So rarity for me, I don't think this is a metrics-based problem. I usually try and break this down into numbers, but for this particular problem, it's a common trap to try and think about, oh, can we grow X percent or can we risk Y amount of money to, to get to some kind of particular outcome? I think this is a mindset question. If you are in a position where you have pretty mediocre growth, and you are now thinking about getting more of that, the question is, are you willing to risk the business's survival on that dream? If not, are you okay with moderate long-term growth, the business surviving, you getting to be the master of your own destiny, but limited payouts, limited fundraising opportunity, etc.? So really, this is just a matter of which one of these two potentially bad outcomes are you willing to accept in order to achieve uh, your dreams and, and, and test uh, what, what you want to try out. If you don't have those kinds of outcomes uh, played out in your head, you must do that in advance of, of making this decision, in my opinion. 
And do, do you ever see it, Ash, that like co-founders might disagree? I wonder if, because I, I see a lot of conflict and obviously one co-founder might be, we can do it, we can grow. And the other one's like, I don't know, I think we really should go for profitability. Is is that as common as I perceive it to be? You talk to a lot more companies than I do. You know, I don't encounter that very much. It may well be because I spend a lot more time with the CEO, so they've already whipped everybody into line by then. Uh, but my sense is that most of the time, at least, the founders that I interact with, probably because they're already seeking venture funding, are more on the let's go for this side rather than the let's find sustainability side or I'm okay with it being a, a you know a seven figure a year business and and being a lifestyle business that is rare um and it's pretty unified that the teams um are are aligned on that growth mindset most of the time I'm having to tell them to pull back and perhaps we need we need to wait on that until we have more product market fit Interesting. And so, Nick, what if you had a podcast and the three podcast hosts were in disagreement about how fast a podcast should grow? What advice would you give them? Hypothetical, of course. I know no such podcast. That's, you know, it's a great Listen to the British person. Uh, you know what? <laughs> there's proof. There's proof that uh, that methodology can work for sure. It does seem, though, that ultimately finding rapid, inexpensive tests and seeing if you can find proof towards growth. Is a Don't really good way to be conservative for That's right. Can't, can we encourage this kind of behavior? He's not going to change. I'm, I'm <laughs> distilling the gems that you two are sharing here and then packaging it into a little synthesis right there. Nick, nobody's going to take us seriously if we're serious. We joke around so people will take us seriously. Don't you understand? It's all reverse psychology, man. Oh, that's too good. That's Again, too good. Again, you can good. just ignore everything that he's saying. It's probably <laughs> French at this we're, point. We're going to make sure to Moving just erase to this from the... Moving on to my last question before everybody tunes out. All right, here we go. Last question of the day. Our biggest customer just had a reorg and we're not sure what that means for our contract. Their renewal is in the next few months, but we're not even sure who the buyer will be. How do you navigate that situation? So first, this could be a particularly stressful uh, stretch of time for you. So best of luck as you navigate through this. Uh, first, just some good practices. It's always in season to build fantastic relationships with your customers especially the big ones, uh, because those relationships are also more complex. Another piece of this too is that you want to make sure you're just generally building relationships with more than one stakeholder within the company. The key thing that I'd recommend is to treat this transition like a new sale. And so that means don't assume anything. Don't assume this is going to be easy. Don't assume this is going to just transition naturally. And so ask the current buyer this champion to give you a glowing warm intro to the new buyer, if that can be facilitated easily, then set up a call, have your champion on the call, have the new buyer on the call and make sure you can have this you know, smooth transition. And again, continue this warm, glowing intro and relationship. And then lastly, of course, treat it like a real sale. So make sure you stick the landing, uh, make sure that you are solving the problem the right way and communicating that to the new buyer, not assuming they know the complete history of this relationship and why this is valuable. So I think treat it like a new sale. That would be my major piece here. Sean, what's your So assume no institutional memory at all. I think that's right. Because if there is institutional memory, then fantastic. You'll be able to leverage and stand upon that. But if you assume that it's there and it doesn't actually exist, then you're going to be in a problem. 
Yeah, man, I'll tell you, I think, you know, they say that you're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. And I think that that's true of these things too. Every time I've ever signed an enterprise deal, I assume that something's going to go south like this. Because if you've never worked at a big company, reorgs are like a sport. They do reorg. Most big companies do reorgs constantly, if not like every quarter. It's kind of insane how fast it happens. Part of it's because there's a lot of churn at big companies where people leave. And part of it's because that's one of their few levers for changing what's going on. And so reorgs are just the fact of life. So you're going to have reorgs. Your buyer is going to get moved around. Your champion gets moved around. They might leave. There was there was one enterprise contract I was signing with, with a really major um, retail customer. And it was, I think it was three months between when we met them. No, it was, it was more like four to five months between when we met them. We did a pilot. We eventually signed a contract. In those t- that five months, there was three CMOs. The first CMO that started the started the pilot quit. They hired a new one. That person quit, and they hired a new one. Like, and so reorgs are the fact of life. So you just have to prepare for it. So what does that mean? It's like Nick said: be paranoid, build lots of relationships with lots of people at the customer because you don't know how these reorgs might happen. And so, in fact, the more relationships you have with the, the widest variety of people, the more insulation you have. If it, the reorgs already happen, man, throw a wide net, meet lots of people, even if you don't. I was I started my career at Verizon many years ago as a very junior employee, and I was always surprised that like the Cisco senior Working sales on the lines leaders out there in the weather. Oh, you yeah, ain't never you know. seen nothing like that. <laughs> I, oddly enough, that's actually a direct quote from my memoirs. Um, but good. you know the the senior you sales leader, <laughs> the senior sales leader from Cisco who used to sell to Verizon used to come to my office and chat with me. And I was like, why in the world would they waste their time with me? And, and now, in retrospect, I realized they were just meeting everybody that they could. They had no idea when I might be involved in reviewing RFP or if I might be a person in decision making, but either then or in a few years. And, and you just get into this mode where you're like, wow, the sale is not done when the sales close. You have to keep selling. You have to keep building relationships and insulate yourself. Because I guess going back to another lesson of uncertainty you know, expect the worst. So give yourself a lot of options for if that happens. And in, in renewals and customers, that happens through relationships. But man, it's not, I've been there, man. Like I said, oh, those those three CMOs. And we closed that deal. Shockingly enough, we closed that deal with those three CMOs. I was just, I was just bonkers, man. That's three, uh, three deals. That's definitely right the craziest I've seen. Three changes of oh, the executive team is unreal. pretty oh. epic. And this is a this is this is a large public company. I don't I don't know what was going on there. But let's let's roll it up for everybody. So we talked about three different questions, guys, around uncertainty. One was about fundraising, one was about my growth versus profitability. This one's about cu- customers. Are there any general lessons about organizations that you see that navigate uncertainty better than others that we can roll up for everyone? Apart from using games of chance to make these tough decisions. We know that is a tried and true methodology for sure. You know, I think it goes back to, you know, our podcast uh, growth tactic here as well, where you can still find inexpensive ways to test things that could give you leverage and growth. And so that is something that it needs to be a part of the DNA of your company from day one. And it allows you to be able to iterate in times of uncertainty, but still keep your keep yourself at the pulse of innovation, so to speak, and and growing along the way. And then going back to the money question, you always want to have enough cash around so you can make your own decisions, either because of customer Mm. revenue or because you've got enough runway. 
Fair enough. Uh, the only thing I'll add is, I mean, if we're as company builders, as founders, like we're usually natural optimists because you believe that it's possible for you to build this thing that is so difficult and so hard. And at some point you have to add in like a pinch of, of just skepticism or pessimism, because if you assume everything will go right, you may not be prepared for things when they don't go right. And so you sign that customer contract you kind of have to be like, okay, cool. What if there is a reorg? How do we prepare for that? Or if you're financing, you raise a fundraising round. What if we can't raise another round? So finding a way to add in a pinch of pessimism on top of your natural optimism, I think is important because it gives you that sense of how do we prepare for the downside? Because in the end, that's the problem with uncertainty is the downside is out there. We just have no idea where it's hiding and when it might pounce at us and and get us. And I mean, you know, it's 2023. It's not like two major banks have failed and we've seen a contraction in uh, venture capital. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, the score the score. The, the counter just went up. Ding. <laughs> it's the national debt clock, but for banks. <laughs> oh, man. I guess the lesson there is uncertainty is, is dangerous. Be careful. Well, we've run out of time with answering questions. Uh, I hope, wish all of you luck in navigating uncertainty. As always, Ash and Nick, thank you for helping us get clarity on this very unclear topic. Yeah, so much fun. Thank you both. Great to be here, guys. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in a future episode about uncertainty or about anything else, toss us a line. Our website is thestartuphelpdesk.com. Our, our, our Twitter handle is thestartuphd. We'd love to hear your questions. That's what makes this show work. We have a lot of fun doing it. So the more questions you ask, the more shows we can do. Do it for us, not for yourself. But for now, the Startup Help Desk is closed. We will be back soon. Good and luck. do it for the children. <laughs> and good luck in building your business. <laughs>